I'm the Gypsy, and you're not. And this is the Rubber Biscuit Road Show, presented by Artist Alley Studio, featuring the artisan, handcrafted, and branded creations of the Gypsy and Mad Hatter at www.artistalleystudio.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 3 of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I'm your host, The Gypsy. If you've been following along with us for the past two episodes, you know that I am presenting my novel, Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, Volume 1. It is the story of my mother, Shirley Elizabeth Hummel, who suffered with mental illness her entire life. In the first episode, we met my grandparents, Oscar and Pearl Hummel, along with my Uncle Carl, and you were introduced to my mother as a small child. In episode two, you met my great-grandparents, Walter and Priscilla Hummel. You also found out about a genetic trait that seems to run in the Hummel DNA, one of which my mother shared and I myself too share. Now as we venture into chapter three of Never Say Never, An Epic Journey, you will discover that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Tuesday, July 23rd, 2013. Tuesday morning broke bright and crisp. I stretched and unkinked my muscles. As I climbed out of my tent, joints popping, I smiled. Didn't my joints used to have fluid in them? I looked down towards Lake Shawnee. The rising sun cast its light upon the clear water of the lake. A slight breeze rippled the water's surface, causing sparkling sunlight to dance upon the water. Taking in a deep breath, I said, There's no place like home. I turned and walked towards the campground's public restrooms. As I headed back from the facilities, I examined my campsite. I had picked that particular spot for a couple of reasons. One reason had been on purpose, the other reason was a guess, and I was now glad to see that my guess was correct. When I had made my reservation, I was looking at the satellite image of the campground on Google Maps, where there were three tent pads side by side near the lake shore. I picked pad number 117. It was the tent pad with the most trees and the most shade, and since my trip would be in July, having a spot that was cool was essential. The other reason for picking that particular tent pad was personal. It was Easter Sunday of 1970, and Shirley, her daughter Patty, and her son Jimmy had been camping out at Lake Shawnee. Every year, Shirley purchased camping equipment with her income tax return, and every year, the small family would camp out a few weeks in the summer out at Lake Shawnee. This particular weekend, they were rain-soaked. The rain had fallen all weekend long with no let-up. They had made the best of it, playing games, reading, and eating cold meals while listening to an endless pounding of rain hitting the canvas of the tent mixed with the country tunes blaring from a small transistor radio. Shirley and the children had a breakfast of cinnamon rolls and lukewarm orange juice. Shirley was upset because she had purchased a new camp stove with her income tax return and had been unable to use it all through the weekend. As a drop of water dripped from one of the tent seams and landed on Shirley's head, she said, Damn it, that's it. Let's pack it up and head home. 
Shirley and the children grabbed the sleeping bags, coolers, cots, and clothes, throwing all into the back of their blue Buick station wagon. Once the tent was clear of all items, Shirley and Jimmy collapsed it quickly and shoved the wet canvas and half-dissembled poles in behind the other rain-soaked items. As the family drove slowly out of the campground, from the back seat, Patty complained about being cold and wet. Shirley had lit a damp Bel Air cigarette, and Jimmy had rolled the passenger side window down to dissipate some of the acrid smoke. As Shirley drove by RV Road, the coachmans and Winnebagos kept their occupants dry and warm. As she approached one rather large RV, she and Jimmy spied two elderly gentlemen sitting under the awning enjoying their morning cup of joe. As Shirley drove past, they heard one of the campers say to his buddy, Well, guess they just aren't hardy campers like us. Shirley and Jimmy broke out laughing. It was a bright punctuation mark to an otherwise dismal weekend. In the years to come, as my mother's mental health continued to deteriorate, that one sentence became a catchphrase for us. Whenever something was especially difficult or things had not gone quite as expected, when those tough times came, one of us could be found to say, I guess we just aren't hardy campers. We would share a laugh and the day no longer seemed as great. I had picked the right campsite. It was the campsite of that long ago rainy Easter Sunday. That Easter Sunday had been relevant not just because of the ongoing joke it had afforded us, but because it marked the last time we would ever go camping as a family. In fact, it marked the last time we would do any sort of recreational activity as a family. Circumstances that were soon to unfold would slowly divide us and drive my mother even further down into her illness. I felt that it was important on this last journey I would ever take with my mother that we stayed in a place that had, at the very least, a small significance in our own personal history. As I approached the campsite, I smiled and said to the sky, Well, Mom, we made it. Today we are hardy campers. I rode my motorcycle over to 29th in California to have breakfast at McDonald's. This McDonald's and I would become fast friends over the next few days as they had cheap meals and fast internet. I choked down my sausage McGriddle, washing it down with an extra hot cup of coffee. I do not like McDonald's, but this one was convenient, so I was going to take advantage of it. The only thing, in my opinion, that is worth a damn at McDonald's is their coffee. They do make a good cup of coffee. As I drained out the cup, I saw the disclaimer on the side of the cup. Caution, contents hot. I just shook my head. The disclaimer had been placed there several years ago when a woman sued McDonald's after a hot cup of coffee spilled on her lap, scalding her. In court, she claimed that McDonald's should have warned her that the coffee would be hot. The judge in the case agreed, and McDonald's was forced to pay the woman a ridiculously large settlement and place the useless disclaimer on the side of the cup. The woman is lucky that I wasn't a judge. I would have ruled her clinically insane, saying you must be out of your flippin' mind if you think you are getting a settlement out of this. What did you think was in that cup of hot coffee, you dumb bimbo? Ice water? Now apologize to McDonald's and everyone for wasting our time. Get out of my court and go get some psychiatric help. I headed downtown. I was on a mission this morning that was twofold and both parts involved spending some time in a building I had last visited when I was 15 years old, the Shawnee County Public Library. If I had been cryogenically preserved in 1972 and reanimated in the lobby of the Shawnee County Topeka Public Library in 2013, I would not have known where I was. The change in the library I last saw when I was 15 years old and the library I walked back into 41 years later was stark and drastic. I stood in the middle of the rotunda and looked around, taking in the busy hub of knowledge. To say that I was impressed would be an understatement. I was in awe. 
I walked over to the information desk and asked for directions to the Topeka room. The Topeka room is not a room. It is three rooms on the second floor of the library, and it holds the collected photographic and journalistic history of Topeka, Kansas. I had not even known of the existence of this room until a member of the Facebook group Topeka History Geeks told me about it. I was there for one reason that day, to regain some of my past, but that goal would prove to go in a direction I had not anticipated. In 1993, I lost almost everything I owned in the Great Midwestern Flood, including all of my class photos from grade and junior high school. I was hoping that I would find at least a couple of them in the Topeka Room archives, yet I was to be sadly disappointed. The Pretty Blonde archivist informed me that they had archives of all the area's high school yearbooks dating back to 1928, but what they had for the grade and junior high schools was sporadic and few. She pulled out folders for Clay, Sumner, Lafayette, East Topeka, Eisenhower, and Marjorie French. As I sat down at a table to go through the folders, she said something that caught my attention and would change the direction of my search. You said you lived on Western? We have all the Topeka High yearbooks. I told her that my mother had attended Topeka High and perhaps she might be in one of the yearbooks. The archivist asked what year she had graduated, and I had to admit that I truly did not know. I took a guess at the years, and she said, I'll be right back. I had just started looking through the Clay School folder when the archivist returned with the 1950, 51, 52, and 53 Topeka High School yearbooks. I left the yearbooks lay on the table and scanned the folders. The Clay folder mostly contained newspaper clippings of the school's change to the Latin school. The Sumner folder was a little more interesting. It contained articles about Brown v. Board and a schematic of the school's two floors. I set the schematic off to one side to get a copy of it. The Lafayette folder did not contain very much. A few newspaper clippings about what a modern school it was and a photo of the south side of the building. I set the photo to one side to get a copy of it. South side of the building was where the playground equipment had been and it was also the location of the jungle gym that had crushed my left arm on the day before Thanksgiving in 1968. By the time I got to the East Topeka Junior High School folder I was becoming discouraged. There had been no school classroom photos in the previous folders, and I did not hold much hope for the remaining folders. I was correct. East Topeka yielded nothing, nor did the Eisenhower Junior High folder. The only thing that the Marjorie French Junior High School folder yielded was typewritten copies of the school cookbook. The Marjorie French folder was a huge disappointment. Out of the other schools I had attended, it was the newest. I had been a member of the very first class from the school. In fact, I was not only the first student through the door on registration day, I was also the first student through the door on the first day of school. My principal from Clay and East Topeka, Mr. Sheldon, was my principal at Marjorie French, so I felt at home there. Marjorie French was a progressive experimental school with open classrooms, and I liked the free spirit of the school. I had really expected there to be more in the folder than there was. I pushed the folders one side and turned my attention to the yearbooks. I started with the 1950 Topeka High School yearbook. My original intention had not been to look for school photos of my mother, but now that had become my focus. I flipped through the black and white pages of fresh young faces staring back at me from 63 years ago. I wondered how many of these people were still alive, how many of them had lived their dream, how many had become husbands, wives, parents, and homemakers, who had died in Korea or Nam, who had lived lives they did not want. Were they happy? whose life was full of regret and whose life was not? Would someone someday in the future look at my high school yearbook and wonder the same about me? My mother was nowhere to be found in the 1950 yearbook. I turned my attention to the 1951 yearbook, and under the H's in the senior photos, I found my Uncle Carl Hummel, my mother's older brother. 
I looked at his photo and it struck me that he did not look too much different than how I remembered him in the 1960s when I was growing up in Topeka. I marked the page and set this yearbook to one side to get a copy of the page later. My mother was not in this yearbook, but I knew I was on the right track. My grandfather and grandmother had purchased a house at 700 Western Avenue in 1945. Oscar had recovered financially from the hardships of the Depression, and with Pearl working full-time at Pelletier's department store, they could finally afford a nice home to raise their small family. The house was large, so they converted the second floor into three small apartments so that the rentals would offset the payment of the house. With Topeka High School only two blocks away, it was an easy walk to school for the children. The walk to Clay Grade School was only three blocks, but the walk to Roosevelt Junior High School had been slightly longer at almost 12 blocks. I picked up the 1952 Topeka High School yearbook, and as I looked at the group of photos of the sophomore class, my heart jumped in my throat. There she was, first row, far left side. The caption identified her as S. Hummel, but I knew her as my mother. I stared at the photo. I had found her. I had to let out a small chuckle. The resemblance to actress Christina Ricci's character portrayal of Wednesday Adams was startling. I searched the rest of the yearbook, but I could not find any other photos of her. I now knew that my mother was a member of the Topeka High School class of 1954. It was an easy matter to locate her in her junior group photo in the 1953 yearbook. She was again on the front row, far left side, and identified as S. Hummel. I looked at the grainy photo and was struck by her body language. Though dressed like a bobby soccer like the rest of the girls in the photo, she was apart from them. There was only a slight smile on her face, yet an overall sense of melancholy about her. Her knees were together and turned in towards the center of the photo, but where all the other girls were pushed together and sitting in contact with each other, there was a gap between Shirley and the girl to her left. I picked up the 1952 yearbook and laid it next to the 1953 yearbook. I looked at the two group photos of my mother and realized that I was looking at a loner, a girl who did not feel like she was one of the group. In that moment, my heart went out, not to my mother, but to this lonely girl in these faded yearbook photos from long ago. I just wanted to give her a hug and say, it will all be okay, Shirley, it will all be okay, even though I knew that it would never be okay for her. I went over to the bookshelf that held the Topeka High School yearbooks, and I reached for her 1954 yearbook, my hands trembling. I was getting ready to see her senior photo, a photo I had never seen. This wouldn't be a group photo like the last two I had just seen. This would be an individual photo, a photo that was taken two years before my birth. I flipped the pages open to the H's in the senior photos, and she wasn't there. I flipped the pages back and forth, but no Shirley Hummel. How can that be? I know she graduated. I remember seeing her diploma once. I sat there looking at the spot where her name should be, and then I remembered. Shirley married her first husband, a soldier named Bill Braswell, the summer between her junior and senior year. Shirley would go down to the USO at 8th and Quincy every Friday and Saturday night. She liked to dance, and the USO not only gave her the chance to dance, but the opportunity to dance with the handsome soldiers that frequented the place. She always felt a tinge of guilt when she would dance because her religion frowned upon it. Her whole family was card-carrying members of the Church of the Nazarene, and if her mother found out she was breaking one of the church's covenants, Shirley would be grounded forever. The thrill of her sin made her want to dance all the more. It was on a Saturday night that Shirley met the handsome soldier. She knew immediately that she was in love. They made such a strong connection. Shirley saw Bill Braswell as her ticket out of her parents' house, and Bill saw Shirley as an easy and convenient way. 
Shirley convinced her parents to sign for her marriage by telling them she was pregnant. She wasn't pregnant, but the ruse worked. Shirley was married to Bill Braswell in a June storybook wedding at First Church of the Nazarene at 10th and Buchanan. The princess would lose her prince six months later when she discovered his terrible secret. I looked at the senior photo of Shirley Braswell in the 1954 Topeka High School yearbook. It was different from the other photos. In the other photos of the fresh-faced 17 and 18-year-olds, all were looking either straight at the camera or slightly off to the left. In Shirley's photo, she was in a profile, looking up and off to her right. She is wearing makeup, and you can almost see the bright red shade of lipstick she is wearing in the black and white image. Shirley has a set of white pearls around her neck that are outshone by her white-toothed smile. She looks beautiful, and more importantly, she looks happy. This is in stark contrast to her dark and moody sophomore and junior class photos. Yes, there was no doubt about it. Shirley Braswell was truly happy and looking with hope and dreams towards her future. Her hopes and dreams would soon be ripped from her, dashed against the jagged black rocks of her mental health far below. Shirley was anxiously awaiting the end of her senior year when she and her Billy, as she called him, would be reunited. Billy was stationed in England and told Shirley she should go ahead and finish her senior year at Topeka High. Shirley had pouted. She had wanted to go to England now with her Billy. She knew, of course, that he was right, but it did not change the fact that she did not like being separated from her love for almost eight months. Shirley had another problem she had to deal with, and it would have been easier if she had been in England and away from her parents. She had lied and said she was pregnant in order to get her parents to sign for her to get married. If she was with her Billy in England, she could either work on getting pregnant or fake a miscarriage to cover her lie. It would be harder to fake a miscarriage under the watchful eyes of her parents. Bill had told Shirley that he would get leave and spend the holidays with her. Shirley knew that that was the best Christmas present she could receive. As Thanksgiving approached, Shirley grew more anxious. She wrote her Billy every day, and even though he only wrote sporadically, that did not bother her. She knew he was busy with his sergeant duties. Shirley counted the days, knowing her Billy would soon be back in her arms. Thanksgiving came and went with no word from her Billy. Shirley had gone out to Forbes Air Force Base every day starting a week before Thanksgiving. She watched the soldiers and airmen coming off the big transport planes. She had imagined that Billy would try and surprise her, but she had decided to surprise him instead. But as the days moved into December, there was no Billy, and Shirley's world was becoming one of anxiety and worry. Every day that went by with no word from Billy, Shirley spiraled deeper into despair. Oscar and Pearl worried about Shirley's mental well-being. She had started showing signs of abnormal behavior in her junior high school years. One of Shirley's school counselors had put a name to Shirley's moodiness and askew thought processes. He called it schizophrenia. Oscar and Pearl knew nothing about the disease and naturally thought that it meant that their daughter had a split personality, two people in one body. The counselor explained that though that was the case in some schizophrenics, that wasn't the case for Shirley. For Shirley, her world was one of delusion and depression. Whenever Shirley's world was not going quite as she had envisioned, she had the ability to fall into a fantasy world that was just as real as the real world. And when her fantasy world collapsed around her, she might have the tendency to fall into bouts of suicidal depression. There would one day be another aspect of Shirley's illness that first manifested itself in the lie about her pregnancy hypochondria. Shirley made calls to the base where Bill was stationed on a regular basis, leaving numerous messages for him to call. The nice corporal who took her calls each time assured Shirley that Sergeant Bill Braswell was fine and that the messages Shirley was leaving were getting through to him. Oscar would give his little girl the moon if she asked for it, 
But Purr was more practical, putting a stop to the transatlantic calls that were driving up the amount of their phone bills. This drove Shirley into a screaming frenzy, accusing her mother of hating her. I know you wish I was dead. Maybe I'll make your wish come true. It had taken a lot to get Shirley calmed down. Pearl made a call to the base herself and expressed the urgency that Bill Braswell call his wife as soon as possible. Christmas Day found Shirley in her bed all day long crying. Nothing that Oscar Pearl or her brother Carl could do would bring her out of her room. Grandpa Clang was visiting, and he sat with her for a long time, but she would not talk to him, though she loved him a lot. Aunt Harriet came to her room, talked with her for a while. Shirley opened up to her aunt a little, saying she was sure something was wrong with her Billy. Harriet's soothing voice and peaceful demeanor calmed Shirley for a while, but she was still inconsolable and refused to leave her bed or her room. There had been a get-together planned at the church for New Year's Eve. Pearl and Oscar canceled their plans to go because of Shirley's now almost catatonic-like depression. They were starting to think that her mental state was more than they would be able to control or deal with and had started talking about getting her some psychiatric help. Pearl was angry. How could this man do this to her daughter? Oscar was more vocal, stating that if he had him here right now, he would beat some manners into him with my cane. January 3, 1955 was the day Shirley finally heard from her Billy. Pearl had retrieved the mail as she came in from work and had seen the letter from Bill Braswell nestled in between the stack of bills and junk mail. She rushed the letter straight to Shirley's room. Shirley had not returned to school after the Christmas break. Pearl and Oscar had decided it was time to get her the help that they had talked about. Now here was the letter Shirley had been waiting for and the hope of pulling her out of the dark abyss that she had fallen into. Pearl smiled and handed the letter to her daughter, who quickly snatched it from her hands. In later years, Pearl would reflect on this day and wish that she had opened that damned letter and destroyed it before her daughter ever saw it. Shirley opened the letter with trembling hands and began to read. My dear Shirley, I am sorry it has taken so long to write to you, but I have had a hard time finding the words to tell you the truth. You are a beautiful girl and we had a lot of fun together. I even enjoyed the formal wedding. It was fun and something I never experienced when I married my wife. I know this will be hard for you, but it is true. I am married to a British girl. We have been married for a little over two years. She is pregnant and we are very happy. I do not know why I led you on. It seemed like harmless fun at the time, but I know it was wrong. You, of course, will want to get an annulment so that... Shirley got no further in the letter than that when a blood-curdling scream came out of the deepest, darkest depths of her soul. It was an ear-piercing scream that would not stop. Pearl was trying to calm her daughter when Oscar came into the room and said, I have called an ambulance. What happened? He then looked at his daughter and saw the blood coming through the bed sheets where his daughter's crotch would be. Oh, God, was all he could say. Pearl looked down, saw the blood, and knew it for what it was, a miscarriage. Pearl said a silent prayer that the ambulance would hurry and that her daughter's screams would soon cease. Well, that's it for this episode of the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow. I hope you'll join us here next week for Chapter 4, Here's Looking at You, Kid. Until then, may God bless and keep you and yours, and later, Gators. Bye-bye now. Visit the Rubber Biscuit Roadshow online at www.rubberbiscuit.com. That's www.r-u-b-b-e-r-b-i-s-k-i-t.com. The Rubber Biscuit Roadshow is produced by Tatman Productions, LLC. All parts of this program are copyrighted, all rights reserved. No parts may be published, reproduced, or used without the written express permission of Tatman Productions. 
LLC.